Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Craig Russell who is an award-winning and best-selling author whose novels have been published in 25 languages around the world. His Jan Fable series is set in Hamburg, Germany and the seven novels to date have been phenomenally successful. The most recent of those, The Ghosts of Altona, won the Bloody Scotland McIlvany Prize for Scottish Crime Fiction in 2015. Well, five of the novels have been made into films by ARD, the German national broadcaster. Craig, who's from Fife in Scotland, is also the only non-German to be awarded the highly prestigious Police Star by the Hamburg Police. His Lennox series of novels are set in 1950s Glasgow, featuring private investigator Lennox, and that series has been optioned for TV development. And Craig has also written standalone novels, The Devil Aspect, and most recently Hyde, which has just been published in the UK. Craig, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Now, I mentioned there that Hyde has just come out and I've been excited to read it ever since Douglas Skelton, who is a Scottish crime writer who was previously on the podcast and he'd mentioned he'd been lucky enough to get, he was reading an advanced copy of the book. And as soon as he told me what it was about, I thought that is a book that I have to read. It's just a phenomenally exciting idea for a novel and I suppose as the novel comes out, you must be, I suppose, excited to see how people react to it. Well, that's always that's always the thing. I mean, that was nice of Douglas. Douglas has been a fantastic champion of all of my stuff, which is great because he can turn the odd phrase himself, can Douglas. But no, it, it's the weirdest, weirdest way of making a living. You sit you know, it takes me nine months just in the writing of a novel. And there's a lot of a lot of research goes on during that period and before. And you've got the concept time where you're thinking. So you're, you're basically sitting there in your own head, working out these ideas, writing the novel. And then, as you say, it goes out, you know, it, it goes out. And the first thing is when it goes to the publishers. And then when it's published, my God, the anxiety <laughs> that causes. I'm going to do it. This, this is a serious bit of name dropping. I was talking with Frank Darabont, who wrote and directed The Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile. And I was amazed. Uh, I explained to him the way I, I felt when a book went out. And I was amazed to find out that he was exactly the same with scripts. And it's this feeling of, you know, this is great. This is the best thing I've ever written. No, it's not. It's, it's complete crap. It's terrible. It's, <laughs> my God, I'm going to email the publisher and say, send it back. Send it back. I'm sorry. I don't mean... And then you think, no, it's great. No, it's terrible. <laughs> it's great. So you, you are going through this torture until you start to get feedback. And, you know, it's always great once it's out there and people say kind things about it then you feel reassured you can settle down I mean Hyde because of the subject matter I felt it was something that people would be able to pretty quickly as you as you said you know you get an idea of what this is going to be about so I think that was maybe easier you know with both the devil aspect and Hyde I decided I was just going to write what I wanted to write I was going to write the kind of book I I wanted to write and, you know, the devil aspect, when it came out, before it came out, it was bought from manuscript by Sony Pictures and Dan Brown's publisher in the States bought it and all of that kind of thing. And when that happened, I was in a state of total disbelief because when I was writing it, I was, I was thinking, you know, I loved the book, but I was thinking, well, there you go. A book set in 1930s Czechoslovakia. That's going to grab them, you know. <laughs> you know, and I, I actually thought there is no way that this is is going to attract attention in the states, for example. 
but it did, you know. And so really, until the book comes out, you know, it's a Schrodinger's cat thing. Until the book comes out, it's to me, it's it's a huge success or a massive failure yeah. or both. You know, I don't know. Because it's funny, I think people will find that quite interesting. You know, first of all, you, you kind of go to the heart of, you know, if you could discover the secret of a best-selling novel, you would, it's almost like a, there's a kind of form of alchemy that you would be at a phenomenal success. As you see, you don't know until the book comes out what readers are going to respond to. But I think people will be quite surprised given the, the body of work that you've produced and the, the success, almost like every time a new book comes out, you go back in terms of, as you say, that nervousness until it comes out that I suppose that that will never leave you as a writer. No, no, I think, and that's what, you know, that's what I was saying about your Frank Darabont. You would think he would be immune to that kind of anxiety, but at the end of the day, you know, people are people. And I've always said that writing is this incredibly intimate thing where, as I say, you're stuck on your own, working away on this. And then when it comes out, you are engaging intimately. Your mind is engaging intimately with the mind of the reader. And you, you become acutely aware of that at the point of publication. So, no, it's, I think it's always, going to be, it's always going to be like that. And, you know, the thing about the formula for a bestseller, for example, I think my advice to anyone who's writing is never think about that. My most successful stuff has been the stuff where I've, I've sat down and I've said, sod it. I'm going to write what I want to write. I'm going to write something that I would want to read. But what I want to read is not necessarily what everyone else wants to read, you know. So, God, who was it said it about Hollywood? No one knows anything. It's the same in publishing, you know. No one knows what the next big thing's going to be. It's brilliant advice. But I also think as well, as a reader, I think you get, sometimes you get a sense of if the author is enjoying having written the book. And I think you sometimes get that sense of it. When you enjoy a book, it's because the very first reader and the writer has enjoyed it. As you say, writing the book they want to read, then there's a sense that, that the book carries that enthusiasm to the readers. Yes, I, I think so, because I think there's nothing worse than sometimes you get very, very successful authors who maybe far along a series phone it in. You know, they, they just write, well, I, I've got to do another one, so I'll do this. I think you've got to be very careful because you can't insult. I was doing an interview the other day and they were asking what the the key ingredient for a thriller was. And I said, respect. You have to respect the reader. You have to respect their intelligence. So I think think that's very important. In terms of Hyde, as I said to you when, when I first heard about the book, I thought that's a brilliant idea. And I mean, if you can explain to people a wee bit about, about what the book's about, but it's, even the start of it is so brilliant where, so Edward Hyde's a, is working in, as a police officer in Edinburgh, but he has, it starts off with this conversation with his friend, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson. He says, I've got a story to tell you. And I talk about a hook in a book. After that, you're like, right, tell me this story. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, that, I mean, that's great. I mean, I, it's a, it was a very daunting thing to approach it because, of course, you are treading on sacred ground as soon as you step into Stevenson territory. I mean, I I grew up in the the east of Scotland, as you know, and I was, you know, Stevenson wasn't just a a part of my literary landscape. He was part of the physical landscape. You know, there was near where I grew up, there was an inn that was the model for the Admiral Benbow in Treasure Island, where I live now. I'm not far away from Ben Gunn's cave and the house that served as the model for the uh, the House of Shaws. So Stevenson is is a huge character, and you know, you're, of course, you consumed kidnapped Treasure Island when you were a kid. So there's a bit of a fascination with Stevenson. One of the things that fascinated me is this, and it's an obsession I share, and that's about the duality of human nature, but also the duality of, of the Scottish personality. Because, because Jekyll and Hyde, though it's set in London, is about Scotland. I mean, I believe it's about Edinburgh, about split personality. So anyway, this is a very long answer to your question. So when I sat down to write Hyde, and what Hyde is about is 
because Stevenson had a friend, William Henley, who was a critic and writer and poet, and he was this guy with red curly hair, and he was very robust, and he was very a very jovial character. But he had lost his leg in childhood, and Stevenson made him Long John Silver in Treasure Island. So I just took that and thought, what if Stevenson also had a friend that inspired Jekyll and Hyde or inspired Hyde? So in Hyde, I have created this friend who is a detective officer in the city of Edinburgh Police in Victorian Edinburgh. He is a good man that's established from the studies. He's a good man, but he has a form. His physician, it's a secret he keeps from everyone except his physician. He has this form of epilepsy where he suffers from lost time. He can't uh, recall what has happened during these periods. And he just so happens to come out of one of these periods at the scene of a murder, which is a highly ritualized murder that follows the Celtic threefold death. So what you have from the start is Hyde is investigating this murder, the investigation of which he is, in which he is a a suspect in his own mind. You know, he can't work out how he got there or what he had done before that. He navigates through this, this case, which involves occultism, Celtic society, Celticism, and explores very much the Scottish identity at that time in history. Because one of the, when I was reading it, because one of the books that immediately sprung to mind, that gave me the same feeling as I was reading Hyde, was the, the private memoirs and confessions of a justified sinner, which... Ah, yes. Which, again, goes to, you know, what you were saying about that kind of duality of personality, which, I, and that, that book chilled me at the time. And I had similar feelings, and I just thought, you know, your book really kind of taps into that kind of same, those kind yeah. of themes. Well, that was one of the inspirations for Stevenson as well, of course. But yeah, I think I have explored the territory before. And I, I just feel that the duality of human nature is, is such a, a rich theme to mine. But also, you know, without, without getting all up myself about it you know the, the concept of Caledonian anti-syzygy I think runs through all of that that literature and it's the concept that the Scots can keep two completely contradictory concepts in their mind at one time without any form of cognitive dissonance you know obviously Hyde is just a it's a thriller first and foremost but one of the things that I, I wanted to explore with it is Scottish identity in the late Victorian time when the British Empire was reaching its peak. And I believe that Stevenson was inspired to write Jekyll and Hyde because of the times he lived in, where there was this Scottish-British duality, you know, and this ambivalence about the union. I mean, at that time, very strongly for the Union because Scotland was profiting heavily from it at that time. But, you know, there are all sorts of questions about would the British Empire have happened if there hadn't been the Act of Union, that kind of thing. So all of that's going on in the background, which I think is relevant to, you know, to where we are now. I mean, that's one thing that I always say when I write about the past, I'm I'm also writing about the present, you know, with the Lennox series, you know, said 50s Glasgow, a fantastic place and time to explore. But again, what you've got is the second city of the British Empire at a time when the British Empire had all but evaporated. And I think a lot of the problems that plagued Glasgow and still plague Glasgow to this day were born at that time. So I like going back and examining the past, interrogating it to see what bearing it has on where we are today. It's funny you should say that because there was a bit that made me laugh in the book where you were talking about the the roadworks in Edinburgh. Like, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so for anybody who's, who's known the, the chaos of Edinburgh in the last few years with the tram system, it, it immediately makes you laugh. 
Yes, yeah, and I tripped over that because it it was actually going on at that time, and I thought, oh no, that <laughs> that'll strike a note. <laughs> <laughs> no, it definitely, definitely did. Yeah, but even things like you know, like having the female pathologist, which was kind of obviously at that time with the you know the attitude to to women in the workplace and women in that particular profession or medical profession. That's a really strong thing that again is it kind of jumps out at you when you're reading it. Again, you know. The Scottish, the split Scottish personality plays a role in that because the character of Callie Burr, she is a newly minted doctor at a time where Scotland had just begun to newly mint doctors and in many ways was showing a hint of this Scottish progressiveness, if, if you like. But at the same time, when she and her peers attended lectures of qualifying, you know, they were almost, well, there was a riot. There was a surgeon hall's riot and people throwing manure and mud and whatever at them. So again, that's that split identity. So it was it was good to explore the attitudes towards women. And also because she is of mixed race, you know, attitudes towards race in Scotland during the height of the empire. You'd said already, obviously, you, you write the books that you want to, to read. Was this an idea that had kind of been fermenting for a while or was it just something that as you say one day you just think you know they sometimes do some people do when you get an idea you think this is incredible and I need to do this before somebody else stumbles upon the idea it's a bit of both to be honest there have been several aha moments you know in my writing career and you know it, it involves a lot of research and a lot of deep thinking but what actually happens, I mean, I, I can actually pinpoint, I was walking the dog with my wife one day and I can pinpoint exactly where we were when I said, I've got this idea. Do you know, Jacqueline Hyde, what if there had been this, this character who inspired? And that was it, you know, and then the hard work begins. But you, you know, you just know, but... Yeah, I have all these theories about it, the way the unconscious works, milling ideas and stuff you've read, and then it'll just poke something through into your conscious. First deal I had were for three fables, and we had agreed what the, the three novels were going to be. But it was the same thing. I was researching one night, and you know, you as you know, I'm obsessed with mythology and where myth and legend comes from function and that kind of thing. So obviously I'm very interested in the works of the Brothers Grimm. It was just late one night, I was just researching stuff. I just had this idea, you know, that would be cool if there was a, a serial killer that actually replicated the fairy tales of the Brothers Grimm. And I said, you know, call him Brother Grimm, you know, call him Brother Grimm singular. And I was it. I actually had to get in touch with the publisher and say, no, the second book, can we put that back? Because this is what I'm going to do. And that was the weirdest experience because that book, it was almost as fast as, as I could type. I had to get it out of my head onto the page. But again, I believe that's because, you know, you, you sit and you, you're not aware you're thinking things through and you're thinking things through and then suddenly it, it breaks through into you, the forefront yeah. of your thinking. It's funny, I've listened to some interviews, particularly with like songwriters, when they're often asked, where do you get your inspiration from? And, and one or two of them have said, they've kind of almost this thing, like the, the songs floating about in the ether that are dropping. And if they're not aware, if they're not ready with a, a guitar at their side, the same way as maybe you've got a, a laptop or a notepad or, or open to these things, somebody else is going to get them. So you've always got to, you never know when this inspiration is going to fall into to your head. Yes. And you've just got yes. to seize it when it happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. I learned, I sleep with a notepad and pen next to the bed because I learned a very painful lesson that I was struggling with a book years and years ago. I'm just hitting this log jam with the plot. I thought, no, I haven't, I haven't thought this through right and I haven't gotten the way this is going to end. And it sounds like a cliche, but I woke up in the middle of the night and it was all there. I had everything. I thought, my God, that's how it, that's how it, it obviously had been working away in the back of my mind. That's how I'm going to resolve this. It, and it's really good. That's so much better than I thought it was going to be. And I actually thought, should I 
get up and just take a few notes. And I thought, no, this is so brilliant. There's no way I'm going to forget that. And I woke up the next morning and I remembered that I had solved it, but I couldn't remember how I'd <laughs> done it. And after that, you know, <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, months of work followed trying to, to resolve it. So this podcast is turning into a masterclass <laughs> lesson for, for, for aspiring writers. Yeah, well, I don't know if it's more a masterclass on how not to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, in terms of, of the podcast, Craig, what I like to do is, is just take people on their literary journey of their life and, first of all, take you all the way back to childhood and ask you for a favourite book from childhood. And the book that you've chosen in this category is The 39 Steps by John Buchan. Yes, yeah, and it still pushes all of the buttons. I mean, I, I read it, God knows how many times I've reread that book, but I read it not that long ago, and again, it was two days. You know, it was obviously, with Buchan, there are some problems because of the time, and he was, he was an enthusiastic supporter of Empire. Uh, you know, there's, there's no doubt about it, but as a fiction writer, as a thriller writer, it's just this... You know, I wish I could master it the way he managed it. And that is, he grabs the reader and won't let go. You know, you you have to know what's going to happen in the next. And, you know, just the pursuit across the Scottish countryside, and which, again, brought back echoes of Stevenson and Kidnapped. It really just pushed all, all of the buttons for me as a kid. And I mean, it was, it's very difficult, you know, it's thinking of one particular book, but, you know, I think that really did stand out. But there were a few books like that that made me think, this is what I want to do. You know, there's something about this resonates with me. I just love the, the craft of this. Did you go on to read the other Richard Haney novels at all? I did, but they didn't make the same impression on me. I think we can come back to this because you, you ask about, uh, you know, later, and there's another book that had a huge Im impact on me. And it kind of relates back to the 39 Steps because there's something about the form of that book that particularly appeals to me. It's interesting when you're, you know, you were saying, even now when you read it, it still has that same thrill and, you know, you love the story in it. And it's been a book that, for better or worse, has been adapted loads of times over the years. And apparently there's a new Netflix series in the often I think Benedict Cumberbatch is starring. So it's still a book that, you know, you can argue whether the, the adaptations have been good, bad or indifferent, but it's certainly a book that filmmakers and TV producers have gone back to because obviously the story it tells, as you say, grips the reader and doesn't let them go. And it's an interesting phenomenon because you can see you can see that there are certain books where the concept, the underlying concept, hits home psychologically. And it is something that is, is timeless. You know, I think, yes, yeah, like Jekyll and Hyde. You know, how, how many times has that been filmed? Or, you know, I'm on the same bandwagon, if you like, interrogating the, the original material. Yeah. Uh, I think just some books have a resonance. One of the things when I was just reading up on the book, which I, I thought was kind of similar to the idea of, you know, when Catch-22 came out and originally Joseph Heller, I think he was going to call it Catch-18 and for whatever reason it changed to 22. And apparently John Buchan had written this book while he was convalescent, he'd been seriously ill and his daughter had counted the steps in the, the private nursing home. And there was 78 steps that led from the garden, I think, up to the, the patio. But then he just basically halved it to 39. And then, <laughs> and then when you hear that, you think, well, the 79 steps just wouldn't have sounded. It just no, wouldn't have been right. No, no. Again, you know, that, that's a whole area that your know, psychology plays a huge part in. How you title a novel and you can come unstuck if you choose the wrong title or it won't resonate. But, you know, no, it's like... 1984, which we can discuss later, but 1984, I don't think would have had the same impact. I mean, because what he did was he wrote it in 1948 and he just turned the last two numbers around. Uh, but I don't think it would have had the same impact if it had been called The Last Man in Europe, which was the original title. Is that something, because I think readers are always fascinated of all aspects of, of a writer's life, but in terms of the titles of books, 
is that something for you? Does that come before you start writing the book, or do you write this? Do you have the story, and then at some point something will drop into place, and you think that's the perfect title? Sometimes I start off with the title. You know, I don't just have the title and think I'm going to write a book to fit that, but you know, I know ex- what I'm going to write about, and then I have the title. But I mean, to be honest, I I wrote under the name Christopher Gold. I wrote a science fiction speculative novel, which involves the it sounds very complicated, it's not, but it involves the folding in of time and people start to have hallucinations. And they, they are witness to things that, uh, you know, people believe it's maybe the quantum collapse of the universe, that kind of thing, and time is folding in, so people see things from the past. And I thought, it is on a huge scale. So I struggled, the book was finished, and I struggled for a title. And I just thought, well, everything is on a biblical scale. So I'll call it biblical. And that was a huge mistake. That was the worst title I could have picked for it because it it went out in the States. And I was absolutely slammed by, I didn't realize, I should have thought about it. There is a massive Christian fiction genre in the States. And people were buying this book thinking it was that kind of novel. Yeah. And then they were horrified to find it was probably <laughs> the exact opposite. It was about science, you know. And it would, the title was changed in the UK to The Last Testament, which again sounds sort of quasi-religious. So that was an object uh, lesson. Believe it or not, the book is at the moment doing the rounds in Hollywood. and I have no idea what it's going to be. If it's a movie or a season, it's what they're going to call it. You know, they they can come up with an idea and yeah. I'll retitle the book, you know, because it's an important thing. And sometimes you struggle, sometimes you, you don't. You know, with the Lennox series, that was such fun to write and the titles were such fun because, you know, it's Chandler-esque, but it's set in Glasgow. So, you know, taking sort of Chandler-esque titles and giving them a Glasgow twist ends up with a title like The Long Glasgow Kiss. You know, that, which, that is a brilliant title. Uh, yeah, which I, I, I thought, doesn't matter about the rest of the book, the title's perfect. <laughs> Listen, anybody seen that book in a bookshop is picking that up as soon as they see that title. Well, if I can take you on now, Craig, from your favourite childhood book and into the kind of teenage formative books, and you've given me a, a couple of books, and I think it's now getting to the heart of where people find uh, the difficulty in the podcast of when I ask you for yes, it's it's, uh, it's a tough choice. But the first of the two that you that you gave me is a book called Figures in a Landscape by Barry England. Yes, which th- this relates back this was what i was saying about the 39 steps it relates back to this barry england was more of a playwright than a novelist but he wrote this novel and it was nominated for the very first runner-up in fact for the very first booker prize and i picked it up when i was 15 and i read it in a day and it is very much and, you know, you're saying it's, it's difficult when you ask people to pick out particular books from a particular period in their lives that are significant. But it's very interesting when you do that, because when I did that, I saw, yeah, that, God, I have a thing about pursuit, you know, because it is so much like, in some ways, the 39 steps. Now, I know we're audio only, but I'm showing you now my copy of it, which was from from when I was 15. Valancourt Books in the States reissued it, uh, and they used the same wonderful cover art. And I am so privileged that they asked me to write the introduction. So I've written the, the introduction to it, which was a weird thing for me. I'm guessing as soon as you start writing that introduction, you're back in the mind of your 15-year-old self and what exactly, it meant to you. Exactly, yes. Yeah, no, it was it was bizarre. But anyway, Figures in the Landscape, uh, it was made into an inferior film with uh, Robert Shaw and Malcolm McDowell. But basically, you have no idea where this is. It is literally Figures in the Landscape. You have no idea where the landscape is, except you know you know, it's not Perthshire, you know, it's a jungle and it's full of snakes and insects and that kind of thing. 
And it's two men, McConaughey and Ansel. One is a real tough guy. The other is not. He's the opposite. But they're, they're chained together and the tough guy says to the other one, we're going. I've got an opportunity. We're going to drop down the side of the track. So they do that and then they start to make their escape across this landscape. It's a, a lot of it's about the relationship between the two men as they, they encounter all of these obstacles and threats and peril. And it just follows them across this landscape. And, you know, we're talking about almost like archetypical psychological elements. There is one helicopter that never gives up. They cannot get away from this helicopter and it follows them all across the landscape. And the, the whole book is about them trying to avoid being seen, trying to find sustenance. And, like, and it is, other people might read it and think, no, that doesn't do anything for me. But for me, it was just so, for 15-year-old reading it, it was just so, so captivating. And again, I thought, God, this is what I want to do. This is what yeah, I want to create stuff like this. Because I think when you, especially when you are younger, when you, there are certain books, and as you said, you, you're almost reading it in one sitting. Even at that time, you might not be able to articulate why it had such a profound effect on you. But you just know you've done something different from all the other books you've read. And then what I also think is interesting is it's those books that, again, are just sown those seeds of you wanting to be a writer. It's more than just the enjoyment of the book, however much you enjoy it. It's the fact that you then want to create your own world on the page because it's had such a profound effect on you. See, it's interesting. You know what you're saying about that inability to articulate it at that time in your life? It sort of it fills you with this impulse to be able to articulate what it is about that book that has motivated you and try to rep, you know, replicate it in your own writing eventually. So no, it was, it was a yeah, fantastic experience. The other one I, I mentioned was, I said The Golden Apples of the Sun by Ray Bradbury, but just generally the short stories of Ray Bradbury and obviously Fahrenheit 451 and other novels. Again, those were hugely influential when I was younger. Less plotting, more conceptual and the craft, the painting with words was what struck me with Ray Bradbury. There is a short story called The Scythe. It's in the depression, it's in the dust bowl, and the protagonist pulls up with his half-starved family running out of gas, and they, they find this house and there's a field of golden corn behind the house and everything else is a dust bowl. Goes in and there's a guy lying dead on the bed, perfectly preserved, holding a single strand of wheat or, or corn rather. And in the corner is a scythe that has on it, he who wields me wields the world. I'm in, you know, <laughs> Absolutely. just, you know, just so you know, and it just the most beautifully written piece of short literature. So at that so, point, even as a teenager, were you, were you already writing or, or starting to write by that point? Uh, yes, I was. I was. I wrote stuff when I was a teenager. There's something I wrote, which, you know, is both embarrassing and I'm quite proud of it as well. You know, Edgar Allan Poe had started, you know, as, he, as he does in your teenage years, you know, Edgar Allan Poe had started creeping. So I, I wrote this Poe-esque short story and I was, I was pretty proud of it. And when I look back and I think, no, that was that was pretty good for that time. At what point from then did you obviously start to develop then or, or focus on it a bit more? I think, you know, as, as I say, you know, it was full of teenage ambition to be a writer. And I, I had wanted to be a writer since I understood what words were, basically. But then, you know, the, the old East Scottish lack of self-confidence started to creep in and it was only it was only later I would say I started writing again in my late 20s but by that time I was working professionally as a writer I was doing copywriting which eventually evolved into a business so I have been writing full-time independently since 1991 
and before that you know there's a the history of of working as a copywriter and creative director and that kind of thing but there was a period where I went and did other things just for the sake of broadening my experience of life as it were but all the time all those influences from childhood and teenage years are probably just fermenting in the yes in the background. yes you know it's one thing that that I find very reassuring is that the appetite people have a tendency to denigrate the generations that come after them but what I'm really encouraged by is there is a real appetite for reading and literature amongst younger people from teenagers onwards I mean my kids are in their their 20s now and you know my daughter for example she won't read ebooks she she has to have a physical book you know she's very traditional in her approach to literature and so I, I think I think these teenage years are, are very important in, in shaping a, a literary identity, if you like. And I think people are still doing it, despite what they're accused of. Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, novelist, Craig Russell. And Craig, we're on to your third book choice, and it's a book that you would recommend to anyone. Again, a difficult question I appreciate, and uh, apologies for for putting you through that. Yeah, you've given me a couple of choices. I seriously lost sleep over this because, (laughs) God, you know, there's so many, you know, the tin drum, Gunter Grass, short stories of Heinrich Boll, so many, so many things. I narrowed it down to Ironweed, William Kennedy and 1984, George Orwell. I think Ironweed is just, it's bleak, it's depressing, but it is so beautifully written. It's about a a bum, basically. A a guy who lives almost a a hobo existence and is an alcoholic, Billy Phelan. And it's about him coming home uh, after 20 odd years. When he was younger, he dropped his baby son on his head and killed him by accident. And it's not entirely clear whether this was the result of him being drunk at the time, but what it, subsequently he just sank into uh, alcoholism. You know, it doesn't sound a bundle of laughs, but there is this magic realism about it where he, he has conversations with dead people and he has you know, visions and this kind of thing. And it's all part of the alcoholic condition, but it is so beautifully, beautifully written. It, it, you know, it won, a, it won a Pulitzer Prize. Because it's part of, I think it's called the Albany Cycle that he's written about. That's right. About eight books. I didn't realise he's still, I think he's about 93 now, he's still alive. He is, and, he's still alive, yes. I think yeah. he was about 84 when the last one was published, which is very yes. impressive. Yeah, well, that gives hope for me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, maybe I'll have a big hit by there. A bigger <laughs> but, hit, to be fair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but fantastic, fantastic book. And I know everyone says it, but the other one is 1984, George Orwell. I think just so relevant and so important to read, despite the fact that the world has moved on and we face different threats from different origins. But I just think it is a fantastic study of the manipulation of the the human spirit and the, the you know how oppression can work and i think everyone should read it and take their own interpretations from it there are things that relate to the suppression of free speech which i think it should be read and studied forever because it just these problems come back in in different shapes and forms I felt probably since the Iraq war and the kind of the war on terror, as it were, I've been saying to everybody that because that's just for me a classic Orwell phrase from 1984. And I've, I've kept saying to people, you need to read this book. And although maybe at the time it was seen as, as maybe a comment on communism, Stalinism, but actually, as, as you said, it's as relevant to the world that we're living in right now as it's ever been. And, and I, I absolutely agree with you. I think it's a book that everybody they really should read it. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, just the, you can see how very easily we can fall into concepts like wrong think. And I think it's just 
the other thing is I've heard I've heard some critics that pass comment on negative comment on the the writing style, which I don't really understand because it's it's very direct. But I just I feel, funnily enough, as a thriller, it works very well as well. You know, as I say, it's a book I would recommend to anyone, but it also falls into the formative years category as well. You know, where it did have a big impact on my sort of political philosophies. But just just a fantastic, enduring novel. And again, one which will be retold and reshaped in film and TV and in other forms forever. It has that perennial relevance. This is a bit I always like when I take you from the contrast of books that you could recommend to, to anyone to a book that you couldn't be paid to read again. And interestingly, the book that you've chosen is The Last Man by Mary Shelley, which again, you know, we're talking about 1984 and its relevance now. It's probably, just in terms of the themes of it, are, are as relevant probably over the last year as, as they've ever been. I couldn't get into it. I just couldn't get into it, which, which is strange because Frankenstein is just astonishing. Yeah, it's just an astonishing piece of literature. And again, hugely uh, influential on me when I was younger. And such an achievement to think that she was 18 when she started it and 20 when she, she finished it. But The Last Man, yes, you know, there are obviously relevances to today, but I just found it completely bonkers. And very, very difficult to read. I just couldn't get couldn't get into it at all. And I, I just, I mean, having said that, you know, I should maybe have a have another go at it. But again, it's very easy to be critical of a work. But you know, she was predicting the future. You know, it was you know one of the earliest novels. You know, sort of projecting far into the future. And obviously, there's a pandemic involved. So. It, 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 has the relevance today. But see, I've got to be honest, to answer that question, I had to delve into the past and someone who is long gone because I find it, I am really quite wimpy about criticising living authors because, you know, I've read some awful books and thought, well, you know, I haven't read them, I've read part of them and given up but my attitude has always been having gone through the mill what 15 times of producing a novel I will say something positive about a novel but I won't say anything negative about it because it is such an investment and it's such a personal investment uh, of someone's time and thoughts you know that uh, I think you know it's part of the world we live in just now there are so many people ready to take pot shots at other people i mean i think yeah. a lot of writers that i've found speaking to have that same attitude for the, the same reasons is that you you can totally appreciate what goes into writing a novel that personal investment and and even if it's not if you read it it's not for you it might be for someone else but exactly and as you say, I think the, the world, particularly the world of the social media, there's that ability for people to be instantly critical, which I never see the point of either, I think. No, no. I mean, I, I think there's a review site called Crime Squad, and I look forward to seeing a book of mine being reviewed on it, because if it's reviewed, you know they've liked it, because they don't review anything they don't like. And that's something, you know... That's all you need to do. If you don't like something, don't mention it. You know, the, there's the entire history of literary criticism, which, you know, you, you've got to acknowledge has its place. But I just think that personally, I, knowing the effort involved in writing a book, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do that. And the other thing, as you so rightly say, it's just my opinion. One of the other things that really winds me up is when authors say, here are my 10 rules for writing fiction. It's the same thing. They're your rules for writing fiction. And, you know, I only have one rule, and that is there are no rules, you know, because I think it's very important for every writer, every individual who's writing 
to have their individual voice. I think that's very important. And I think, you know, if someone writes something and I don't like it, it's maybe because that voice doesn't chime with me. I suppose it's like all, all forms of art. It's, it's subjective. It is, yes. It's, it's completely subjective. And, you know, I, I don't understand, you know, when people vent about something. And sometimes there is, there is a lot of venom about different things. I mean, you know, if I watch a bad movie or whatever, you know, I don't immediately go put up a terrible review, you know. You know, I've watched Love Actually. You know, <laughs> actually, that's not true. I haven't. You know, I've never watched it. But you know what I mean. I think with, particularly with people starting out with careers, uh, writing careers, there should be an element of kindness and support rather than, in a lot of cases, envy. I think that you know they've done that. And I think, again, good advice for future guests on the podcast, just choose a dead author for this category. Yes, yes. <laughs> longer dead, the longer dead, the better. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I could take you on to the, it's the fifth and final question. And it's a book that I, you've, the last book you read, or the book that you're currently reading. And the book that you've chosen is a book by S.G. McLean, and it's called The House of Lamentations. Shona McLean is a fantastic historical writer. I mean, she's won the CWA historical dagger twice. And, you know, she has she has a couple of, of series going. And I ha- I'm just about to start on this because I'm doing an event for I Write. And it's going to be uh, Shona McLean and Robbie Morrison are going to be on it. And it's great to be on a panel like that where you actually really, really like the work of the authors. Robbie Morrison's Edge of the Grave, I don't know if you... He was a guest on the podcast a few weeks ago. And, oh, uh, right, right. And, uh, I love the book. I thought it was Yes, fantastic. yes. Because, you know, it's the 30s in Glasgow and it's a police detective, but, you know, the Lennox novels are set in the 50s in Glasgow and, you know, it, it resonates with me and it extremely well done and and Sean is a a fantastic author as well so I'm reading that for this event I'm really looking forward to it I always say to people whenever they give me their choices there's always something in your choices I think I'll need to read that but what I liked about that one is I have the first book in that series The Seeker which I haven't read yet so I thought that's kind of given me a wee prompt right that's five books in the series right if I can start on the first one then that gives me that's a good series to yes to tackle Yeah, I think, I mean, what Sean, Sean is really good at is immersing you in the period, which is what I try to do. And, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading. In terms of your, your own reading, is there certain types of books you read or does it depend on what you're working on at the same time as you maybe want to read something that's in complete contrast to what you're writing? My reading is very eclectic and it's, I don't actually read a lot of crime fiction. I know that sounds odd, but I don't read a a lot of crime fiction because I think if you're working in a genre, and what I like to think is that I push at the edges of the genre a little bit, you know, try to cross into other other things. I think there's a danger if you define yourself as a crime writer and you read nothing but crime, then things will start to become imitative you know you'll copy different styles unconsciously that kind of thing so I I tend not to do that I just I read across the board when I'm in the midst of writing I try not to read much at all because it's a weird thing with me I have to be completely immersed in the the world that I've created and the other thing is you know uh, sometimes you read something by someone who's in the same sort of area as you, you think, oh, God, that's, that's so good and I'm crap. You know, you, you, the, the whole self-doubt thing starts to collapse in. But, you know, I read, you know, I read a wide variety of, of stuff. But, you know, it's a mix of modern and traditional and, or classic. So there's a, there's a, a fair mix there. I, and that, that's one thing that I've always, you know, my, it's just, again, my opinion, but advice to aspiring writers is read everything. Don't just read the genre you want to write in. Just read everything. 
a good example of that is, you know, obviously the Lennox series is classic noir, as I say, it has, a, has more than a touch of Chandler about it. But part of the inspiration for the Lennox series was reading a short story by Heinrich Bull, the German author. And it was basically just, there was a literature movement in Germany at, immediately after the Second World War which translates as rubble literature, men coming back from the war, sometimes after long captivity in, in Russia, coming back to the place they had left, and it's in complete ruins, and it's a metaphor for everything being in ruins. There's this short story by Heinrich Boll, and it's called Pale Anna, Glassa Anna. And it's just about the returned man. It's about someone coming back from the war and damaged and waiting for this girl that uh, he had admired from afar before he had gone to war. And there was something about that short story that just gave me the entire feel for the character of Lennox. Because again, he was a a damaged man returned from from war. And so that's absolutely nothing to do with the genre I was writing in, but very important to get those influences. Well, normally when I get to the end of the podcast, I always thank you for your your book choices, which I will, but also I think on behalf of every writer or would-be writer listening, I think I'll have (laughs) to thank you for for all the the bits of advice you've given us throughout the chat. I think it's been really, it's been really insightful as well. And really, uh, I I must admit, I've I've really enjoyed uh, chatting to you, Craig. It's been been brilliant. I'm glad you feel that way because I do go on a bit. <laughs> it's, it's been absolutely fascinating. And uh, obviously, I wish you all the very, very best with, with Hyde that is just out in the UK. I can't recommend it highly enough for people to, to go and, and buy it for a whole variety oh. of reasons from the start. And the story itself is just uh, absolutely brilliant. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but th- thanks for joining me on the Read All About It podcast. No, it was my pleasure. Absolutely delighted. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you've thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.